Great to see you guys. Welcome to Sedaris. Go ahead and take a seat. Wrap up that four-minute conversation. Well, welcome, guys. Um, one thing that I like about Sedaris is that it's always hard to rein in the four-minute conversation. Um, I actually love that because I think it's counterintuitive because I always thought that, like, wait, you do what at church? You talk for four minutes? That's going to be too long. Um, but you guys just love each other so well. And so, um, yeah. Well, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and if you brought your Bible with you today, go ahead and uh, take it out. Turn over to Mark chapter 4. That's where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one place underneath one of the chairs in front of you. And you can take that out and turn over to Mark chapter 4. Um, if you don't know where the book of Mark is, there's no shame in using the table of contents around here. So, um, yeah, just look it up there and you'll be able to turn over there pretty quickly. We're going to be in chapter 4, all right? Mark chapter 4. Um, if you're just joining us, we've actually started a, uh, well, we, we, we're in the middle of a sermon series right now called um, The Most Important Question Ever Asked. The Most Important Question Ever Asked. And, and what we're doing in this uh, sermon series is we're really being true to one of the major themes in the Gospel of Mark. Mark and his gospel, one of the major things that he's uh, trying to do, and one of the, well, he, he's successful in doing it. He's not just trying, sorry. Um, he's successful in doing it, is showing how when everybody came into contact with Jesus, they were forced to answer a, a, a really big question. Okay, they're forced to answer this question. And, and Jesus actually asked his disciples this, this question at one point in time, and it went like this. Um, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Everybody in the book of Mark, they come into contact with Jesus, and they have to answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And actually, it's true today as well that this unique and fascinating aspect of, of Jesus that he did, that he demanded an explanation of who he was, um, is actually true for us today. That he, there's something special about Jesus. You know, like, I'm just like a skinny, pale guy. No one has to reckon with the question of who is this Ryan Farrell, Right? I mean, just this little guy. I mean, everyone's like, yeah, that's just, a, that's just a tiny guy. But everybody has to reckon with the question of who is Jesus, okay? Um, and so that's what this sermon series is all about. It's the most important question ever asked because the way you answer it, it takes you in vastly different directions in life, okay? Uh, and, and, in, and, of course, in the life to come as well, okay? And, and tonight we've come to a parable in Mark chapter 4. Let me turn over it as well. Um, we've come to a, a parable in Mark chapter 4. And um, we're calling this the most important parable because Jesus said that inside this parable, um, if you can understand this parable, you can understand all of his other parables too. That there's something key to, to this parable about the kingdom of God that when you grasp it, you can grasp what all the parables have to say about the kingdom of God. So it's, it's the most important parable, okay? It's the most important parable. And um, how we understand this parable is largely dependent on understanding how faith works or how we understand faith works. And, and so we can't understand this parable really unless we understand how faith works because this parable talks a little bit about how people get faith in Jesus, how people get faith in Jesus. Like, that's, that's a term that we use often um, as Christians, but it's actually a pretty strange term, um, how people get faith in Jesus, right? And, and even for those of us uh, who um, are, are a good, true skeptic, you might kind of say, wait, we're going to understand how someone gets faith in Jesus. Isn't that a little bit like capturing lightning in a bottle, Ryan? Like, come on, 
We, that's a little silly. Well, it, on one level, yes, you're right. Um, and on another level, um, Jesus shows us an understanding about how faith works um, after this parable, when his disciples come up to him and they're like, hey, what was going on with that parable? Why are you doing that? He gives them a deep understanding of how faith works in his response. And, and it's this understanding of how faith works that actually um, empowers us as disciples. Because anybody who's been a Christian for any amount of time, um, you've come into contact with this saying here um, from the, the, the Gospel of Matthew. It's go therefore, this is Jesus speaking, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, And this is kind of a, a tall order, isn't it? To go and make disciples of all nations and then to teach people. In fact, sometimes it's, it's such a, a tall order that, that we actually reduce um, uh, its understanding to the second verse here, that, that making disciples is really all about growing Christians that are, are less mature to more mature. Um, that, that's what making this disciples is, is really all about. But um, when we read the first half of this, it, it's very clear that making disciples starts with people who aren't disciples. And this is a really tall order in Seattle, right? Like, where 19 out of 20 people aren't disciples of Jesus. And of those 19 people, uh, the majority of them probably have some, some pretty good arguments against and maybe even animosity against Jesus here in Seattle. It's a pretty tall order. Um, but Jesus is going to let us know how faith works. And here's the key. When we grasp how faith works, when, when we grasp Jesus' understanding of how this works, what we find is we actually um, unlock the door to confidence in talking about Jesus with people who don't know him. That, that this aspect of how faith works, when we grasp it, we can actually find a whole lot of confidence in being able to talk about Jesus with our friends, with acquaintances, even with strangers, even with strangers, you know, um, uh, and so we're going to unpack the, here this uh, tonight together, and I hope that it can really give you confidence for how to do this well, because I think for a lot of us, um, if you're anything like me even, this is really scary. This is, this is scary, and it's okay to admit that, all right? Um, and perhaps we just have misunderstood how faith works, all right? So <clears throat> let's see here. So Jesus unpacks this, um, I'm going to give you the flow of the night. Jesus unpacks this understanding of faith sometime after this most important parable. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to go through our our parable. We're going to make some preliminary observations of the parable. And then we're going to go to that conversation that Jesus has with his disciples after he talks about the parable, okay? And that's where the the understanding of faith, that's where the big nugget that we're going to take today is. And then we're going to look at Jesus' explanation of the parable, because Mark gives us that too. Okay, so we're just going to go with those three, those three things today. It's, it's in the same order that it's written in, in Mark chapter 4. All right? Great. Okay, so pick it up with me in verse 1. Mark sets the scene for us. Um, right in verse 1, he starts to set the scene. He says, Again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea and on the land. 
All right, so here we have clever Jesus. Jesus being really clever here because um, he, he looked around and there was a, a huge crowd around him and he realized if I start talking, not everybody's gonna be able to hear me. Um, but what happens when the shore hits the water? It, it's actually slanted, right? So when shore comes down to water, we're all in Seattle, we get this, it slants down into the water. And so what Jesus did was he hops in a boat, he rows out a little bit, and all the people are on the shore. And what does this do? It creates kind of this natural amphitheater effect, all right? And so Jesus is really maximizing how many people can hear him, how many people can see him, okay? So there's a lot of people, and he wants to make sure that he's seen and that he's heard, okay? This is really important for later, okay? So just keep that in your head. <clears throat> all right, so, so that's what's going on. And then this parable, um, if you have kind of uh, paragraph headings, this is called the parable of the sower. And to understand this parable, we have to understand something really crucial about sowing. Um, and this isn't like sowing with a needle. This is sowing seed, like farming. It's a farming sowing. And we have to understand something really crucial about how uh, agriculture worked in the first century Israel. And that's that sowing came before plowing. Sowing came before plowing. So what a farmer would do is he had his field that was there in, and it would lie uh, dormant and vacant uh, since the last harvest and people would walk through it and create paths and some weeds would grow up in it as well. And, and, and then he would go and he would scatter seed across all of it and then he would plow it and you know, put the plow behind the donkey and the donkey would break up the soil and the seeds would kind of fall down in. That, that's how they did it back then, okay? So you just have to have that key understanding as we read this parable. Um, all right, so we're going to read it now. And what I want you to do is, um, if you've heard this parable before, I, I want you to do a thought exercise and forget what you know about it. Okay, I want you to forget what you know about it because I really want us to experience this parable just like the crowds did as much as we can and experience this parable just as much as the disciples did too, okay? Because uh, something's going to be made very, very apparent if we, if we can do that, okay? All right. And verse 2, pick it up with me. I'm going to read it for you. Try to, try to forget everything you know. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of, depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and when the thorns grew up and choked it, and, it, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears, let him hear. So who wants to um, interpret this for us now? Who, who, who wants to come up here on stage and tell us what Jesus is talking about here? It's really difficult, right? Like, this is a very strange thing to hear and then just interpret right away. And, and that's what I, I want us to feel right now because um, <laughs> Jesus only spoke parables on this occasion. Like, he created this amphitheater effect so as many people could, he could talk to as possible, as many people could hear him as possible. And if you skip down to verse 33, um, Mark lets us know what Peter told him, and Peter was there. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without 
a parable. But privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. And so Jesus has just given a whole lot of parables to these people here. And it's really, really strange. It's really, really strange. And one thing I want you to see here, this is where our first clue about faith is, is what word the parable starts with. It says, listen. And then the second word is, behold. Um, it, uh, Jesus often used the word behold uh, when he was starting uh, something, when he was starting to say something. Um, and that kind of meant, hey, listen up. You know, like uh, Lucy, my little girl, she's four, she's in preschool. And her preschool teacher goes, silent fox. That's kind of like Jesus saying, behold. Okay, same thing. Same exact thing. But on this instance, Jesus puts something before it, and so we need to pay attention. And it's listen. It's a command to listen. It's a very strong, forceful verb. In the Greek, it jumps out the page at you. And then then at the very end of the parable, he uses it two more times. He he says, and he said in verse 9, he or she who has ears to hear, same verb, to hear, let him or her hear, same verb. And, And so there's something about this parable there's something about this parable to be perceived that's not directly on the surface. And it seems that it has to do with the ears that people have. It seems that it has to do with the ears that people have. And, but of course, this is just a metaphor that Jesus is using. But there's something about people that enables them to understand what Jesus is talking about. That's kind of the first clue about faith here, that there's something that is about people that enables them to hear what Jesus has to say, okay? So what is he saying? I hope you're confused right now. If you are, that's right exactly where you should be. Don't, don't, don't get worried and be like, oh shoot, I guess I don't have ears to hear. That's not what I'm trying to show you. But it's gonna become apparent later that Jesus' disciples didn't get it either. Okay, and, and they were guys of faith. <clears throat> but the question is, why? Why, Jesus, would you set up this whole thing and then just speak in parables? I mean, aren't you on the scene to try to, like, actually do something here? Like, and you're just speaking in parables all day. Why would you do that? Aren't you trying to bring about something? And, and I imagine his disciples asked the same question later. I imagine his disciples asked the same question because look at verse 10 here. It says, and when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about all the parables. They're asking him, hey, Jesus, what's going on here? Why are you teaching in parables? We don't understand you. No one else understands you. Everyone's coming around you to really figure out what you're all about, and you're speaking in mystic sayings to them. What's that all about? And Jesus gives this reply in verse 11. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Wow. That's that's kind of statement. I mean, that's a really big statement, Jesus. Does that kind of mess with your your notion of who God is? Doesn't it seem here that, that Jesus is like, He doesn't want them to understand them because he doesn't want to forgive them? Like, how is Jesus any different than the prophet of Jonah in the Old Testament? Prophet Jonah, God gave him a word to go and bring to the Ninevites so that they would repent. And Jonah runs away because he's like, no, I don't want the Ninevites to repent. I just want them to die by your wrath, God, actually. How is Jesus any different? He's trying to be misunderstood lest they turn and be forgiven. 
Isn't Jesus' whole point to like come to the world to save it? Isn't that why he's here? It seems that he's doing the opposite right here. And in order to understand that, we have to look at the greater context of what's happening. That's usually what you do in the Bible when you're confused. You take a step back and look what's going on around it. And we look at chapter 3. And what's happening in chapter 3? It's, it's pretty insane. Lots of things are happening in chapter 3. Um, at the very beginning of chapter 3, uh, after Jesus is, has been reasoning and talking about what the law of God means, um, the religious leaders of the day have gotten together with the political leaders of the day, and they're conspiring to kill Jesus. They're, they're conspiring to kill Jesus. Um, later in chapter 3, his, his mother and his brothers show up on the scene, and they're trying to do some sort of intervention. Like, hey, Jesus has lost it. Like, let's get Jesus and, like, take him home and calm him down a little bit. He's doing all these crazy things and saying crazy things. His, mothers and brother, his mother and brothers don't believe him. Um, and then uh, what Dave talked about last week was that there's this element that um, people are looking at all the actions that he is doing, delivering uh, evil spirits out of people, and they're like, ah, that's the, he must be the devil. So Jesus is, is steeped in um, a, a setting of blatant opposition and incredible unbelief. That, that everybody is really opposed to Jesus at this point. And what he says here in verse 11, he says, um, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. He's just pointing at the reality. His disciples are following him, and no one else is. That's what's going on here. His disciples are following him, and no one else is. And so the disciples seem to have this secret of the kingdom of God is what Jesus is saying. That's enabling them to follow him and, and no one else is. In fact, to everyone on the outside, Jesus says, everything is in parables. And to order, and I want us to really understand that, that phrase, to everyone on the outside, everything is in parables. Um, first, we have to understand what a parable is. And, and this is what's really interesting about a parable. On the surface, it seems like a really nice story, Right? Uh, we're, we're really intrigued. It's engaging our imagination. This is really fun. You know, like I, I started reading books without pictures to my daughter, and we engage our imaginations. It's a lot of fun. Um, but at some point in the parable, um, we're almost forced to make a judgment about it. We're almost forced to ask the question of like, is this true? Is this true? It's, it's a natural thing that we do when we read a parable, when we encounter a parable. Is this true? And, and then the, the next judgment that we slip into making without even realizing is, um, if it is true, what does it mean for me? Did you guys do that as we read it? I, I, I guarantee you did. I, I, I mean, I guarantee that you were, you were like, if this is true, like, what does this mean for me? And here's the thing. Jesus is just like a parable. Jesus is just like a parable. On the surface, he seems like a really nice guy, but as you get to know him and as you, he engages your imagination a little bit, all of a sudden you're forced to ask the question, is this true? Is, is he really the rescuer of the world? Is this true? And, and if this is true, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? You see, Jesus actually embodies the parable which is really fascinating here. And so when he says to those on the outside, everything is in parables, that word everything isn't talking about just the parables that he just spoke in this instance. 
He's actually talking about everything that he spoke. He's actually talking about the times when he tried to speak really plainly with the people, like on, on the Sermon on the Mount. Like, the Sermon on the Mount is, is pretty straightforward. This is what life in the kingdom of God is all about. He's actually talking about the time when he actually entered into arguments with people like Dave talked about last week. And he's actually talking about the times when he, he healed people. He's actually talking about the times when he delivered evil spirits out of people. Everything is in parable. When those on the outside, everything is in parables. And Jesus is saying, the only way to explain all of this unbelief is that the revelation of God in Jesus, the most perfect, purest, most complete form of who God is, comes to the world and it encounters hard hearts. It remains a parable. He remains an enigma. That, that people can't make heads or tails of this guy. People see the Son of God and they conclude he's the devil. People see him, him saying crazy things and they conclude he's insane. They hear him talking about other things and they conclude that he's got to die. You see, when, when Jesus, the revelation of Jesus, comes into contact with hard hearts, he's an enigma. And, and that's why he says, verse 12, that's why he says, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may, in, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. So he's not saying that, that I'm, I'm, I'm speaking in parables so that they may not turn and be forgiven. He's just illustrating the fact that he is a parable and they're rejecting him. He, he's not sharing this to uncover his intent in the matter. He's actually just sharing this to uncover a reality that's taken place in this context. He's not using it to justify him talking in parables. He's using it to show that he is the fulfillment of a parable. That's actually what's going on here in verse 12. All right? And so this is what's interesting. He speaks in parables. And the only conclusion that we can draw from this is that he's not trying to persuade people to have faith in him. He's not actually trying to convince the crowds that he's the son of God. He's not actually doing that. And so here we have this strange chicken and the egg dilemma here. Which comes first? Understanding Jesus or having faith in Jesus? understanding Jesus? Or do you have faith in Jesus first and then you can understand him? Or, or do you understand Jesus and then you can have faith in him? Well, it's really not a dilemma at all. It's what we learn that Jesus is saying. He's saying to some has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Having faith in Jesus comes before understanding Jesus. And I don't know if all of us have this notion of how faith works. I think we might have it the other way around. But Jesus isn't trying to persuade people to have faith in him. Now, I'm a skeptic myself. Um, anybody who knows me knows that, uh, that I'm a skeptic, you know? And you can even ask my parents. Like, the first 10 years of my life, I was an awful, rebellious child. Um, you know, there's people who talk about how to discipline their kids, and they're like, oh, we don't want to spank our kid. Like, I had to be spanked a lot growing up. It was, it was, it was great, I guess. Um, <laughs> I was, but I was just skeptic. I was really doubtful that these people knew what was best. And, um, and I'm, I'm also a skeptic of just like the greater culture. Like um, I'm often a late adopter, not because I, I, uh, I live under a rock, but, but because I have to be convinced that this is actually a reasonable and good thing to do, all right? 
Um, I'm also very skeptical of the physical world, and so that led me to, to really study um, higher-level physics for my undergrad, you know, and take classes like nuclear physics, particle physics, quantum mechanics, uh, relativity, and, all, and a whole bunch of other boring physics classes, too. You know, like, I'm a, I'm a skeptic of the physical reality. Um, but here's what happened. Eventually, I came around. Eventually, I understood that, oh, my parents are just looking out for me and, and trying to do what's best for me. Um, eventually, the greater culture like convinced me that, oh, it's okay to have Facebook, you know? <laughs> uh, I, I tried Twitter, and that's garbage. I got rid of that. Um, <laughs> eventually, my, my uh, professors said that I did all their, the homework assignments and their tests, and they said, yeah, you've done everything needed, and you agree with us, and so now we can give you a, a, a diploma in, in astrophysics, you know? And so I got that from them. And so in each one of these cases, I was persuaded eventually to, I guess you could say, have faith in, in these, these uh, general systems of how stuff works. And don't get me wrong, I don't think I'm special in this regard. I think all of us are like this, right? I think all of us, I mean, in the world right now, uh, we've never had more opportunities and options of what to do, how to spend our time, how to spend our money, who to go out with, what restaurants to go to, where to live, where to work, like all, all this stuff. Everybody's trying to persuade us to do everything almost, it seems, right? Everyone's trying to persuade us to do everything, but, but faith doesn't work like that. It's not something that, that you uh, try to get someone to persuade into is what Jesus is actually saying. And, and this is something that is unique about Jesus' three-year ministry. Do you ever wonder, what the heck was Jesus doing out there for three full years in the Israeli countryside? Like, isn't he supposed to come here and just take care of our sins and then get on with it, you know? No, he spends like three years creating settings like this amphitheater, trying to get as many people to listen to him as possible. But they're not understanding him. And he's not actually trying to persuade people. He's not trying to convince people that, that what he has going is what's best. He's actually a parable. And he's trying to figure out who has faith. That's really the lens that you can look at Jesus' three years of ministry through. He's going from town to town to town, trying to be heard, as, as many, heard by as many people as possible so that he can find where the people are faith, uh, of faith are. Theologically, this is referred to as the believing remnant of Israel. Because God's word had always gone into Israel many, many times and into the surrounding nations um, through Israel's proclamation. And, and this is what happened. It was largely rejected, but then by a much, much smaller population, it was accepted. And so Jesus is going around from town to town to town to town, trying to find these hearts of faith. That's what he's doing. And this kind of gives you different categories for, to think through the disciples, right? Like, these aren't just like a couple poor fishermen that Jesus is like, hey, if I start feeding you, will you follow me? <laughs> no, these guys were part of the believing remnant of Israel, and they followed him in a sea of unbelief that refused to follow Jesus from town to town. At one point, uh, Jesus even uh, sends them out to go find people of faith, too, to go find the believing remnant. We're going to talk about that later in Mark. Um, and eventually, by the time Jesus gets to Jerusalem, there's 100 to 200 people that are actually with him. Actually, Mark kind of nods his head to a few of them here in verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12, so more in addition to the 12, asked him about the parables. And so there's this element here of, of Jesus is looking for people of faith. That's what he's doing. 
And I want us to see this method of the mission of Jesus because I'm pretty sure that we're called to imitate that method as well. That imitating Christ includes imitating his method of evangelism or sharing himself with people. That imitating Christ means imitating his method. And that means, and, and this is really cool, this is really cool, okay? If, if you kind of tuned out, I get that. If you tune out in sermons, that's great. Um, that's fine, I mean. Uh, it's not great. It's fine. Tune back in for a second, because here we are. We've gotten to this principle of faith, and we've gotten to what it means for us, okay? When we understand that, that we are actually searching for faith in the world instead of trying to persuade it and trying to convince people to have it, it's incredibly uh, stress-relieving. It's incredibly empowering. When we realize and we put aside, when we realize to put aside the full responsibility of convincing people to come to Jesus, it becomes really cool, actually. You know, because sometimes this is what happens in Christianity. We get it worked up in our heads that, like, if I'm going to share Jesus with people, they're going to have questions and they're going to have arguments and perhaps they're even going to have some intense emotions that come out, come back at me. And, and we, kind of, we kind of get in this mentality that if I'm going to share Jesus, I'm going to need to survive an, an, an investigation. But in reality, we're the investigators. You see that? In reality, we're the ones that go out into the world with our magnifying glass, Sherlock Holmes, looking for people who have faith in Jesus and, 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 and talking about Jesus with them and inviting them to experience the gospel in other ways. And, the, and so the, it, it really gives us a lot of confidence when we don't feel like we have to, to answer every question, to address every argument. It really doesn't. And do you know what else it does? It, it gives us it gives us uh, the ability to handle rejection when that comes too. Because if it's not on you and, and people reject you or re reject you talking about Jesus, it's not because of anything that you've done. And it's definitely not because your truth is bad. It's just because they didn't have a heart of faith. They didn't have a heart of faith. And so it gives us that. And, and this is really important because Dave talked about it up here in the announcements that we're asking people to invite their friends back to Hamilton. And, and these are potentially people that have come to Sedaris before but then stopped coming for one reason or another. And, and we're actually, we've actually been in the process of this, of asking everybody who's ever come to Sedaris to come, like making personal phone calls and emails and being weird like that, um, actually. Um, <laughs> um, but ask them again. If, and it's not on you just feel free to talk about Jesus and ask them to come to church again. And, but, and here's what often gets in the way. Sometimes we can even view this church service as, as the means to persuade people into having faith in Jesus. But the simple reality is that's not what this church service is all about. We actually could get to Hamilton and the environment's awful. The sun is blinding. We don't have this nice intimate uh, environment where we can really worship Jesus, right? Dave is always preaching with mints in his mouth. Like the power goes out, you know? That doesn't matter. We're not there to try to persuade people that we're the best gig in town. We're, we're just there to try to, to try to find hearts of faith. That's what church is all about. So that's why we, we, we proclaim the gospel each and every week. That, that, that's what we're all about here. But so don't let that get in the way either. We're, they may encounter imperfect church services, but last time I checked, like the church did church without power for like the first 1900 years of its existence. We're going to be just fine if we have to go a cappella and, and shout the gospel, all right? So invite your friends. If they say no, it's not on you, okay? 
All right. Oh, this is what, I was going to tell you guys a story now. This is a great story. Um, when I was about four years old, uh, both my parents had jobs, and um, so they took me and my little brother, and they, they dropped us off at, um, at daycare each morning. And uh, a, a, a woman named Karen ran this daycare, and about 15 of us kids there, I think Karen had some other help there. I don't really remember a lot of it. Just remember there's a pretty cool slide. Um, but yeah, so we were there, but each year, um, Karen was actually a part of a small church plant uh, that met in a middle school cafeteria close by, or you could say commons uh, close by. Middle school cafeteria close by. And every Christmas Eve, every Christmas uh, time, she would invite all of the families to the Christmas Eve service. That, that's what she would do. Uh, and she did this faithfully every year. And the first year my parents were there, they said no. Um, and, and the second year my, that my parents were there, my, my mom just felt so guilty. She's like, this is the lady who's taking care of my kids. We, we have to go. And my parents didn't grow up in faith at all. Like they, they, they had never been Christians. They weren't Christians. And so they were scared. They were nervous. I think the only thing they had ever experienced was they toured a Mormon temple once uh, when it opened. Like that's, that's the only exposure they had to religion. So they're really scared. They go to this Christmas Eve service and they felt really obligated. So they walk into this Christmas Eve service feeling obligated and scared that night. And they walk out Christians. And, and I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Karen. You know, I mean, I just learned this story like two months ago. Like, I'm going back to Denver in February. I'm finding Karen. I'm going to give her the biggest hug ever. Because when the gospel encounters hearts of faith, they become Christians and they experience the life of Jesus. And that's what it's all about. All right? So we don't need to be good at handling arguments. We don't need to be good at handling questions. We just need to be able to invite people to church. We just need to be able to tell people about the revelation of Jesus that you have yourself and see where it goes. All right? Okay. Qualifying statements, um, because this is an intense topic sometimes when we talk about faith, and so I want to give you a couple qualifying statements, just because a lot of us, a lot of our closest friends are non-believers and um, so yeah, I want to give a couple qualifying statements. Um, the first one um, is that outsiders aren't denied the possibility of faith altogether. Outsiders aren't denied the possibility of faith altogether. Um, they're just denied the possibility of understanding more about the secret kingdom of God until their, their, their hearts soften. And, and people's hearts soften at different times in their lives, often. Often this is what happens, either. It's just a, a work of the Spirit where they wake up one morning and they're like, hey, like, I need to figure out who Jesus is. I've seen that happen. Or God really uses new, um, new or, or difficult circumstances in their life that, that really get down at their need of like, oh man, I need to depend on somebody else to help me and, and rescue me. And, and, and so we, we never give up on people. We never give up on people who, who have rejected the gospel. We, we, we keep on asking and we keep on praying because there's something here that, that the grace of God is what gives people hearts of faith. And so we petition God time and time again on, on the behalf of our non-Christian friends to give them hearts of faith so that they can eventually respond to us, okay? They're not denied the possibility of belief altogether, okay? Or, or forever, 
Okay, and then the second one is knowing these arguments and having answers to these questions isn't altogether unimportant. Okay, if, if you've read a lot of what um, I think uh, the Christian church calls apologetics, like, that's not entirely time, time lost, okay? I, I will say that the social sciences are finding that the more and more that people debate a position, the more and more entrenched in their own position they become. It's almost as if there's like something beneath the logic and reasoning that's actually driving people to hold certain logic and reasoning. You know, it's almost as if faith comes before understanding here. Um, but a lot of times these, these uh, answers to questions and arguments do have the possibility to really get distractions out of the way so that people can deal with Jesus. Um, and even these like larger scale debates that happens between Christians and, and atheists, like while the debaters themselves are never going to come around to their opponent's position, almost never, I guess I should say, there's always, there's always a possibility. Um, but people looking onward, maybe that's the way that they encounter revelation of Jesus for the first time. So, uh, and, and that's how their, their, uh, their hearts, their soft hearts can begin to experience the life of Jesus. All right. So those are two qualifying statements again. Um, and if you're still not on board with me, that understanding comes before faith. Um, there's one more thing in this passage that, say, that, that says that. There's one more thing in this passage that, that says that, all right? Um, and that is that, uh, it, pick it up with me in verse 13. Verse 13. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The disciples don't know what's going on. They don't know what's going on. They didn't understand the parable, but these are guys of faith. These are guys that had faith in Jesus, but they don't understand what he's talking about. Jesus seems surprised. I almost see Jesus being surprised. And then Jesus goes on to explain it for them, all right? So I'm gonna explain this parable fairly quickly for us, um, and, and then we're gonna, we're, we're gonna close tonight, okay? But, uh, so this is kind of our, our, our third movement here. <clears throat> Look at it in verse 14 with me. The sower sows the word. This is short for this is uh, God sending his revelation into the world. There's not a corner of, uh, of God's field, of God's creation, of humanity that hasn't seen, seen some glimpse of God. There, there's not a corner of it. And, and even nowadays, almost everybody on the face of the earth has at least heard of Jesus, has at least heard of Jesus. The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. These are the ones along the path. Okay, and so this, this lets us know something very crucial, that there's opposition to the revelation of God in the world, and that's Satan. And he's all about taking it out of the path so that people can't actually encounter it. This can be often done through misunderstandings of what the gospel is or misunderstandings of the past, Okay. Um, so th this really tells us something, too, that people with hard hearts, they're not the enemies. Satan is. Satan is actually behind a hard heart. So this actually informs our prayer. We not, only, we not only pray that God would give people hearts of faith, but that he would um, bind Satan from taking away the revelation of Christ. <clears throat> and these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, verse 16, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then with tribulation or persecution, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. 
This is talking about something that, that the audience of Mark experienced firsthand. Um, he's writing to Christians in Rome who are experiencing a lot of persecution. And uh, this is what happens when the church experience per, experiences persecution. People leave. Um, people leave. And so Mark is, is showing them, yeah, Jesus accounted for that. This is actually what's going on. They didn't have hearts of faith that grasped the full commitment of what it meant to be a Christian. And, and there's also, he also talks about tribulation here. Um, tribulation is, is when, when people encounter hard things in life and, and, and they look to God and they say, how, how could you let this happen? That's often the phrase. How could you let this hard thing happen? You must not love me. And so they, they, they misunderstand the love of God and, and they fall away. All right, verse 18. <clears throat> 19, sorry. Oh, yes, 18. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. It proves unfruitful. Um, these are people that, that, that really view um, their faith as just a, a, like a third or a fourth or a fifth ball to juggle along with everything else. And, and when it comes down to it, their, their lives get full and they get packed and they realize they want to pursue other things more than they want to pursue the gospel. And so they put that ball down. And, and I, always, I always advise people never to put that ball down because you miss so much fruit when you put it down. You miss so much fruit, both growth in your own life and then also uh, mission, missional fruit when you put that ball down and when you realize that those, those desires and those other things that, that you're pursuing actually aren't giving you that much life and you go to pick that ball back up, it's actually really heavy and hard to pick up again. It's not easy to pick that ball back up. So I always advise people, are you sure you want to put that ball down right now? It's going to kill your fruit. It's going to be really hard to come back sometimes. All right. In verse 20 here. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. These are the people who truly have counted the cost of following Jesus, that they truly are there, they truly do have hearts of faith to respond to Jesus and, and give him full priority and full commitment in their lives. And they have lots of fruit. Do you know how fruit works with grain or corn? You start with just one grain, and then it just, it just multiplies. And, and so the kind of the, the understanding here is that, that we start with one piece of revelation that hits us, hits a soft heart, and it leads to life. It hits faith, and it leads to life. And all of a sudden, we get to, to get to the point where we grow, and we have all this other revelation of God that we get to scatter it to other people in the hopes that it can hit soft hearts and that they can experience life too. And every now and then, they do. So this is the parable Jesus explained to his disciples who didn't understand it, but they had faith. And so Jesus gave them understanding. And so if you walk away with anything tonight, I, I really want, want all of us to stop assuming the responsibility to persuade people or to convince people to have faith in Jesus. Remember that, that we're, we don't have to survive an investigation. We are the investigators in the world. And that faith comes before understanding and we're just trying to find it. What failure really is, <laughs> failure isn't failing for, to have someone come to Jesus. That just means they might have a hard heart. Failure really is uh, the failure to take the revelation to the world and invite them to places where they can hear the gospel. That's where failure really lies. So, so leave tonight with um, a reduced responsibility of sharing Jesus. Uh, leave tonight with a, a renewed confidence 
and, and what that could look like and, and leave with a reduced fear of rejection, all right? And ultimately, we, we, we really want to leave tonight um, praying for our friends, praying for all the people who are going to come to know Jesus through Sedaris Church and, and through us knowing and revealing Jesus in this world. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you so much for uh, my friends here, we, and we all just look at your word and we thank you for it. We look to Jesus and, and we, we just say that, that he is good and, and he is beautiful. And for my friends here, that, that, he's, that Jesus is still a, a parable to them or he's still an enigmatic figure, God, I pray that you would continue to help them consider. I know that they're here tonight because something about you has made them curious. And if they're curious, I'd say they're on the step of faith, God. So I just pray that you would, that you would help them, um, that you would give them hearts of faith to the fullest measure. Pray for all of our friends, God, that you would give them hearts of faith. We pray against Satan and him taking away revelation from people so that your word can be made great. Pray all of this uh, in, in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.